Sending best wishes to all of our global family village who are celebrating birthdays and anniversaries, holidays, and any type of memorial this month, October 2022. Thank you for listening and supporting the podcast and for sharing the podcast on your social media. Ring. Ring, ring. Hello? Message. Have a good weekend. $9.5 billion. That is how much money is going out in rebate checks to millions of people across this state starting today. The middle class tax refund will put a little money back in the pockets of Californians hit hard by inflation. ABC 10 News reporter Nate Holmes joining us live from downtown. Nate, folks who are eligible really want to know how they're going to be getting that money. Well, Virginia, so the good news is if you filed a 2020 tax return, then you essentially don't have to do anything, but just wait and give the state a little time. Now, the payments will be sent out via direct deposit right to your bank account, or they will be a debit card will be mailed directly to your home. This is kind of similar to the process for the Golden State stimulus checks that went out a few months back. Now, with rising costs for food, gas, and household expenses, the refund will hopefully bring a little relief to those here across the state. Now, nearly four in 10 Californians have had difficulty paying for usual household expenses or are fearful of eviction. And that's according to the Census Bureau's household poll survey. Experts say inflation could stay high for months and for some, this could lower their standard of living. Who's on a fixed income and uh, is a low income uh, American might find that their rent is beyond what they can pay. If that results in homelessness, it, it will affect them for years. Up to 23 million Californians will receive the middle class tax refund regardless of immigration status. The payments will range from $400 to $1,000 for couples filing jointly and $200 to $700 for all other individuals. Now, as we mentioned, the payments will be made via direct deposit in bank accounts or a debit card will be sent right to your home. Direct deposits are expected to be issued to bank accounts starting today through November 14th. And then debit cards are expected to be mailed between October. October 25th and December 10th and then the state will follow up with the letter towards mid-January on just how much is on that debit card. So definitely want to give the state just a little time but those payments expected to be starting coming out today. Live in downtown Nate Holmes, ABC 10 News. The great experience.
And your income for 2020 or 2021 is either less than 125. 
Welcome in, everyone. Thank you for listening and supporting. We're going to get an update on the Biden-Harris student loan debt relief program, their plan for student loan relief. A pre-recorded message. Listen. Everyone doing? Welcome in. Welcome in, everyone. And we're going to take a quick look at the update on the Biden-Harris administration's student debt relief plan. Sorry, my voice is trying to get better. We had a gas leak and power grid fell and we had extreme heat. Time for all of us to become strong, healthy again, but we'll get there. Continuing debt relief update from the U.S. Department of Education. Update on the Biden-Harris Administration Student Debt Relief Plan. Quote, last month, President Biden announced his administration's plan to provide student debt relief to eligible borrowers and give working and middle-class Americans more breathing room. You asked for updates on the administration's plan. This email contains additional information and we will provide you weekly updates as more information becomes available. Who is eligible? You are eligible if you have most federal loans including direct loans and other loans held by the U.S. Department of Education and your income for 2020 or 2021 is either less than $125,000 or individuals or less than $250,000 for households. If you are a dependent student, your eligibility is based on your parental income. 
what you might be eligible for. Up to $20,000 in debt relief if you received a Pell Grant in college. P-E-L-L Pell Grant in college. Up to $10,000 in debt relief if you did not receive a Pell Grant. How it will work. In October 2022, the U.S. Department of Education will launch a short online application for student debt relief. You won't need to upload any supporting documents or use your FSA ID to submit your application. Once you submit your application, we'll review it, determine your eligibility for debt relief, and work with your loan servicers to process your relief. We'll contact you if we need any additional information from you. What's next? Right now, you don't need to do anything. We will contact you when the sign-up period for student debt relief opens. We will send you regular updates with more details over the coming days as we near the application period, which will begin in October 2022 and last through December 2023. In the meantime, visit our frequently asked questions page to find out more information on the Student Debt Relief Program. Beware of scams. You might be contacted by a company saying they will help you get loan discharge, forgiveness, cancellation, or debt relief for a fee. 
You never have to pay for help with your federal student aid. Make sure you work only with the U.S. Department of Education and our loan servicers and never reveal your personal information or account password to anyone. Our emails to borrowers come from no reply at studentaid.gov. No reply at debt relief that student aid cub or ed.gov at public dot gov delivery dot com. You can report scam attempts to the Federal Trade Commission by calling 1-877-382-4357 or visit Report Fraud dot f t c dot gov end of quote and they are communicating by email so if you go to student aid.gov and get on the, the mailing list so that they can contact you through your email address. This is how they will be reaching you in the coming days and weeks as they process all the students that are requesting debt relief at studentaid.gov s-t-u-d-e-n-t-a-i-d dot g-o-v student aid.gov to communicate with the U.S. Department of Education. Thank you for listening. And I'll open a parenthesis to say they mentioned the Pell Grant which students or their parents do not have to repay. 
but in order to qualify for the Pell Grant, the family had to meet a lower th income threshold. So that qualifies this, the Pell Grant recipients for extra debt relief help. The student and family still does not have to pay back the Pell Grant because it was free, but they, that qualifies them for an extra $10,000 relief for the student loan amounts. So instead of the up to $10,000, it will become for Pell Grant recipients up to $20,000 grant student loan, pardon me, up to $20,000 student loan relief. The exact dollar amount is determined by the U.S. Department of Education and they will attempt to match the highest amount of the debt so that if the debt is qualified for just up to $10,000 and the debt is $10,000 and above, then they will attempt to cover federal student loans to the maximum $10,000. But they are the ones that will determine that in each case will be processed individually. Thank you for listening.
countries in which European universities and academics have stated that Egypt is Caucasoid or it is it is Semitic or Hamitic or Afro-Semitic or Afro-Hamitic, eventually they invited Sheikh Antediop and Theophilo Benga. This is the first time at any international conference on an intellectual matter that Africans are invited up to deal with their own story. Theophil Obenga, he, he, he wrote me last week, this is the first time I'm hearing from him, because apparently Diop left a lot of papers after he died, and so several people in France and French-speaking Africa suddenly become aware of the journal for the first time. Theophil Obenga is a an expert on Bantu, he's head of the Bantu Research Institute in, in Brazzaville. Um, he's a great linguist, like Diop. And they appeared at this conference, everybody else was European, or Arab, from the Arab Republic of Egypt. And at this conference, everybody came unprepared except the two Africans. Could you imagine that? This is a conference meeting, an academic conference meeting to discuss the peopling of Egypt and these guys arrive empty-handed, talking from their heads. The Africans arrive with heavily researched papers. The linguistic evidence of Diop was so startling that everyone had to admit this is one of the, the, the revolutionary things that Diop and Obenga, particularly Diop, had proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that Egyptian language was not Semitic or Hamitic, it was African. But there is where the agreement ended because when Diop tried to show that not only the language was African, but that the people were African, everybody got upset. And those people who couldn't say that it is not so, they said, we mustn't talk about race anymore. We are all human beings here. Let's stop talking about race. So let me read you the passage from my introduction, which deals with this. A summary of this conference is of interest and value to readers since it reveals the state of Egyptology at the moment and the defensive reaction to the question of blackness or Negroness. Professor Galab of the Arab Republic of Egypt declared that the human race during the Paleolithic era, which is the Stone Age, was more or less homogeneous and Caucasian, meaning to say all human beings were first white. This is, the, this is, the, this is an Egyptian, you know. And that Negroes only began to appear much later. A Negro culture, he claimed, did not appear prior to the Neolithic, that is the age of agriculture. Professor De Bono of Malta spoke of a race of pyramid builders coming into Egypt, a race with Lydico-Asiatic affinities, without even deeming it necessary to show where on this earth stands the proto-pyramid that this race constructed before it migrated to Africa. How could you have a race of pyramid builders who never built pyramids anywhere else? Several participants, finding it difficult to demolish the op, decided instead to demolish all talk about race. Professor Sav Soderberg of Sweden, while demonstrating that the majority of Neolithic cultures in the Nile Valley belong to techno-complex of Saharan and Sudanic cultures, said the concept of race was outmoded and should now be abandoned. After he showed that the technology of the early Egyptians is Sudanic and Saharan, which is African. He said, don't talk about race. 
Race must, races are outmoded must be abandoned. Professor Farcuta France, insisting that there was no way to tell how many of the Egyptians were white and how many were black, felt the evidence nevertheless showed that Egypt at least was African in its way of writing, its culture, and its way of thinking. Now just imagine that. You can't tell how many white people are there, yet everything they're doing is African. In other words, they're white Africans. These white Africans, their language, you said, is African. Their culture is African. Their science is African. And yet you can't tell whether they're white or black. Professor Shinny of Canada said that Herodotus and all the Greeks and Romans who called Egyptians black were merely being subjective like Dr. Diop. Race was not a scientific concept. Oh, no. Professor Mokhtar of the Arab Republic of Egypt said the problem of race was unimportant. Professor Abdullah of the Sudan, after chiding Diop for adopting an Africanist approach to this problem, went on boldly to assert that the Egyptian language belonged to the family of proto-Semitic languages and that there was abundant evidence to prove it. He had not come to the conference, however, with his abundant evidence. This, in fact, was one of the remarkable revelations of this international conference. In its final report, UNESCO pointed out, quote, listen to this. Although the preparatory working paper set out by UNESCO gave particulars of what was desired, not all participants had prepared communications comparable with the painstakingly researched contributions of Professor Sheikh Antidiop and Obenga. The Africans at last had done their homework, and those theses, which had once seemed formidable, now shook with the fragility of leaves and the new intellectual wind blowing from the continent. All the time they had had their own way until they had become intellectually flabby. This is one of the things that I have noted. When I was in Arizona some years ago, I had to fight with someone they called an expert on Mexico. And when I opened up on this guy, I realized that I didn't fighting an equal, that he couldn't fight because he'd never fought in his life. We have to fight. We have to fight for every inch of ground. Nothing is yielded to us without this struggle. But they always took it for granted. As my mother used to say, they're born with golden spoons in their mouths. And so when at last he met a fighter, he couldn't fight. When I started on him, I suddenly realized, I said, you know, animals, when they fight like apes, etc., when they're about to overpower you completely and they realize that you are losing, the ape pulls back. Man doesn't usually pull back. And there is something Christian in me which said, you know, you've got him on the ground now, let him go. And there's something devilish in me that said, let him go my foot. <laughs> he has trampled us for cent. These are the kinds of men who have destroyed us for centuries. They are still destroying us. Our children are being destroyed. Don't let him go. The time has come to kick these people. Amen. When the knowledge arises, there is no compromise here because we are dealing with something savage and brutal. It is impossible to become involved in black history without becoming involved in politics. Because to reconstruct the history of black people anywhere in the world, you have to fight against a climate of great prejudice. A white man that I've worked for, if he's alive today, he has a uh, liberal with a capital L. His name was Dad Steiner.
I asked him about some books on the African people in ancient history. And in the language of the South, he let me down slow. I mean, he spoke kindly. He said, you know, John, I'm, I'm sorry that you came from a race that's made no history. But if you persevere, if you obey laws and study hard, you make history someday. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. In terms of scholarly debates, we know of the work of Sheikh Anti Diop, and he's played an important role in verifying the ethnicity of the ancient Egyptians. Robin, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Professor Sheikh Anti Diop was a scholar from Senegal. And why he's important is that he wrote a book called Nation Negre et Culture, but the English came out as The African Origin of Civilization, Myth or Reality. That book came out in 1974, and because it was now in English, it attracted a very wide interest. In that book, Professor Diop presents essentially part of his doctorate thesis. And his doctorate thesis was not just that the ancient Egyptians were black Africans, but also that other African culture can be related to ancient Egypt in much the same way that European culture is related to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, same idea. Now, what Diop presented was, first of all, he went through the various classical scholars. Now, the classical scholars are the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, and he presented 10 examples where they described the ancient Egyptians. And then if you go through some of the examples, there's an ancient European scholar called Herodotus, who was an ancient Greek scholar. He said the ancient Egyptians had black skins and woolly hair. Lucian says that the ancient Egyptians were too black, then describes them as having thick lips and bandy legs. Other scholars, Diodorus Siculus, suggested that the Egyptians actually descended from the people of what we would now call the Sudan. And when we examine our ten scholars, they paint quite a detailed picture of what did the ancient Egyptians look like. Then Professor Diop went in search of positive proof, and what he did was he had access to a series of mummies that were excavated by a gentleman called Mariette. And the Mariette excavation mummies, Diop removed elements of mummy skin and had that skin examined. Essentially what he was looking for was the evidence of a high quantity of melanin or the absence of a high quantity of melanin. And that way we could work out, are we dealing with Negro skin or non-Negro skin? Diop suggested that all the mummies found at the Marietta excavations. All of them had Negro skin. The next thing then was UNESCO commissioned something called the General History of Africa. That took place in 1974. Now the big sticking point was going to be where is ancient Egypt going to fit into this, these volumes, the General History of Africa? So they called the debate and the debate was called the Cairo Symposium. And at that debate, two scholars presented a case that the ancient Egyptians were Africans, and 18 scholars presented a case that the ancient Egyptians were Europeans, Asians, not Africans. 
the two scholars, Professor Sheikhanta Diop and Theophila Benga, won the argument. And if you read the General History of Africa, Volume 2, the debate is in there, and it's really, really funny, just watching two people slaughter 18. Must have been very embarrassing for them. <laughs> it's been so embarrassing that one would have expected that to be sort of common knowledge and someone to do a documentary about it and so on. But for obvious reasons, none of this has happened. I guess that's our job to do. Indeed.
Shangazi no, ikamwambia mjomba no, bado na so. 
Napata chakuwa langu Niishi maisha yangu 